1: Adjust your tracking and all the playlist podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional, independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem and you have one month to watch it. Visit mubicom dot slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Fitting enough for this episode of AYT where we talk about streaming and the evolution of watching movies these days... Uh, it's fitting that we're sponsored here by Mubi, but uh, just it's worth highlighting again that they curate a new film each day on this streaming service. So it makes it really unique and uh, they clearly know what they're doing over there at Mubi. So we thank them for their sponsorship of the podcast. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von oppen Joe, you know we've we've talked a lot uh, of late, uh, and I guess we we have for since the inception of this this podcast, we we talk about our concerns with the with the theatrical experience, where it's going, how it's evolving, and just like these days, really rapidly changing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, on, on this episode, we're we're definitely going to be talking about. A good amount of things that are streaming streaming only and that of course plays a big part into how things are changing in the theatrical world but i also just wanted to bring up to keep this conversation going because i think it's it's not something we're ever just gonna not be concerned with but uh i I guess in a weird way i wanted to talk about just briefly like repertory going to going to see repertory screenings uh, seeing movies at a theater these days seeing older films and, right. you know, you live in L.A., so you have access to a lot of really cool theaters that do, you know, pretty much regular programming of this sort of thing. Me in Portland, uh, we have less so, but we certainly have our share of theaters that do this. But uh, not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago at, at uh, my theater here in Portland, Cinema 21, we did a week long noir film festival of just old crime movies, uh, you know, Gun Crazy, The Killing, stuff like that. And um, it was deflating, to say the least, to to to, <laughs> <laughs> to run these shows for a week. We had programming. We had a a, a guy named Elliot Levine, who's a pretty well regarded film programmer from San Francisco, who wanted to bring his show of classic noir titles and things that he has cultivated down there for for decades. He wanted to bring it up here, and of mm-hmm. course, you know us, you know movie fanatics up here, we get very excited about this sort of thing. But then, of course, the reality is, um, and I guess I, I felt kind of silly by the end of it that I shouldn't have been surprised, is ultimately you get about 30, 40 people a show at best for these kind of things. Right. Um, so while it's deflating, it was definitely def- deflating for the programmer who was really hoping to have this be more of a boom, boom thing yeah. for for that. But um, I guess I'm just curious, like, wh- where it- – the reality seems more and more if you if you aren't showing those sort of very obvious canonized titles that everybody knows. Like if you show the Third Man, you'll get a good crowd probably to come see that mm-hmm. movie in the theater. But if you want to get into the little bit more, you know, stuff that has to be curated specifically by someone with or people with real na- uh, knowledge and passion of the, this era and these movies, it just seems yeah. like there's not enough pull to get people out of their house.
0: Well, I think I think you're right that it it does sort of circulate around a kind of cult of personality, whether it's either the programmer or the theater itself sort of generating a personality that people sort of trust and go to in in terms of going to the kind of like lesser known films that are that are being preserved and sort of like um, archived through, you know, like revival screenings and repertory like theaters like you have to, if they're lesser known movies and they're not canonized, then you have to trust whoever is like curating the whole experience, like the the place or the programmer. And so I see that a lot, like, you know, especially with like the new Beverly that you've got, like, you know, if it's not Quentin Tarantino himself, like a team of programmers there. One of my favorite programmers in L.A. is now working there, Phil Blankenship, nice. who... There, So you're you're getting like a a slew of sort of like titles that you're just like, oh, I've never seen that. But like now it's it's getting the sort of the the chance to be seen in a in a crowded room on a big screen again. And like everything gets a boost from that and everything gets a sort of like attentiveness that you lose otherwise, you know. And so like, I don't know, it's interesting because like I feel like as as much as I'm spoiled down here, like Portland hasn't ever been far behind, you know, with theaters like cinema 21 with the Northwest film center with the Hollywood theater. Like you're in super good hands with like repertory screenings and revival screenings Mm -hmm. and just being, having access to just a, a a slew of just like nerd frenzy movies, you know, that you can, you can go to. It's just that um, our good friend, uh, Ted Hurleman was just like concerned that the, there there wasn't enough support you know in terms of like intense film appreciation to to continue that happening mm. and and so you know like he he works for the hollywood so like he's he's at work you work at cinema 21 so you're you're in the sort of like trenches making it happen so it's like it's you know it's a scary kind of crossroads to be at where you know i see that like you know, I can go see a, a weird Chuck Norris movie around Christmas time at the New Beverly, and it's crowded. And this is like—I hope this never goes away—that like there's this level of kind of appreciation for obscurity and for the bigger titles, and that like, you know, that's what if if opera can be kept alive in some <laughs> like subsidized sense, like that's what I think of in terms of like movies. Like, what if there was a kind of like almost art gallery uh, support system from, I mean, granted with the, the arts funding being completely slashed with a new administration, it's less likely, but mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it was like a film preservation system where it could be like, there's a, a museum that's playing matinees all day of like stuff that, and they're, they have different programmers plugging into different things. So it didn't have to worry about constantly generating income that it would be preserved as the art form that it that deserves to be preserved, you know. That yeah. like, and uh, was that too long-winded of an answer?
1: No, not at all. I mean, it's it. This is this is why I wanted to open with this because it's it's it is something I think we both constantly think about, worry about because we love that so much. Like, so it, yeah, it, it's warranted that you would come out with like a long answer because we have a lot of thoughts about it. Where uh, you hate to have weeks where you get deflated, as I was referencing with our noir festival right. recently, but. There is a sense that like, okay, yeah, it's changing. There might have been a time where if you show Gun Crazy, a print of Gun Crazy at that theater, maybe 10 years ago, you'd get a ton of people to come see it. Maybe maybe it hasn't changed that much. Maybe you got to rethink the way you program these things. There's, there's of course stuff to be proactive about, I guess, but you can't help but I, I felt so bad for for the programmer of that uh, that series at our theater because where does a guy like that, where does he exist in this realm where if you're just going to play sort of the obvious a titles, you know, the, the, the canonized stuff, well, what, what is a programmer really needed for when it's the obvious things? And my worry is the, is the way the effect that Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, all these can have on people. Netflix, I feel like, especially because that's just got such a, uh, a reach across the world of that's, like of course they get obscure things on there beyond the stuff that they are making themselves on Netflix. They get some obscure, you know, far off the beaten okay. path films, but most it's it's sort of homo- it's creating a, like it's 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 making the homogenization of like tastes for moviegoers. It's just it's making it happen rapidly, more and more rapidly. I think, and you know, it's a little bit worrisome on the effect it's having on the audience to me, and I don't. It's a it's a complicated thing because, like I said, we're going to talk about some streaming stuff on streaming here, at least to start. And I think as we continue, it's just going to be a big part of what we cover on this show is there are just some films or shows, miniseries, whatever, things that we're going to be passionate to talk about. But I have mixed feelings where it's like, I like watching stuff at home too, but I also don't want to lose that thing of going to the theater. And maybe you, you your point is really solid there that sure. – I think I something I'll just propose this to you and see what you think. Like, do you where do you think like we're going to be with movie theaters even in like five or 10 years? I really have this strong feeling that we're going to see a lot of theaters shut down.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that we've covered this in the last like couple of episodes, just thinking about like the, the preservation of the theatrical experience and like. A lot of times, like, I think it's going to go the way of the sort of, like, shopping mall. That, mm-hmm. like, the multiplexes that are kind of largely, I, I would imagine, empty most of the time. Like, in a lot of cities. Um, like, during the day, there's just, like, you know, movies playing to no one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because they have, like, 16 to 18 screens. And so, like, those are, I think, are just going to end up atrophying. And having to be shuttered. And the sort of, like, the, the single screen kind of uh like palace type theaters that still exist you know luckily like you know cinema 21 and stuff like that in portland and then in la there's like you know a a bunch of them but like they they they're they're a specific kind of experience that as long as like the people i don't want to say purists that's gross but like you know as long as the people who value the experience of going to the theater continue then like i don't know that that's ever gonna die off Mm -hmm. and i think but I also think that that sort of confidence that it's never going to die off also lends to a kind of like apathy about it. And it's like yeah, well, it's not going to go away. It's like you don't know that. Like there's nobody exactly. promised that this this art form was going to continue forever. And like you know, I think that there's like a little bit of Andy Rooney crotchety. Uh, what's what's that when you're phobic of technology? What's like a luddite? Like there's yeah. like, have, like luddite tendencies, but I think that there is a merit that, like, you know, you don't have to stand in the way of progress, but what if it isn't progress? Like, what if we aren't, what what if, like, people are getting so distracted and so they don't have, like, the attentiveness to sit through a feature length film and definitely don't value it enough to go see it in the theater? Mm -hmm. You know, if that starts to, like, I don't see anything more exciting or satisfying or just, you know, in enriching taking its place you know what i mean like i don't mm-hmm. see people's level of diminished attention span segueing into something more profound for anybody yeah and so like and so in that sense i'm just like well okay so like let's let's wait before we fucking level all the movie theaters because like maybe there's something there not maybe there is something worth preserving here yeah so it's like when you like when you step in and you need to subsidize it in some way to like keep i mean we're far off from that happening but like you know it just is there's there's something very valuable in it
1: dr harper why did it take you six months to address us where have you been
0: it seems to me that I, I invite you here to my home.
1: We only received that invitation after the suicide toll had rapidly reached a million.
0: Can you remember, um, like, uh, on hand, like, most of the movies you've actively stood up and walked out of?
1: <laughs> and we're talking just if something I paid to go to a movie theater to see.
0: Yeah, Yeah. You know, you could have gotten in free, but like mm -hmm. it takes a lot to get you to stand up and leave a movie, probably, right?
1: I can think of (laughs) only one time, and I went into another movie and watched that instead because I hated it. So, what I was watching. So, okay. So.
0: (laughs) but I'm sure there are plenty of titles that you've just stopped watching on Netflix or whatever streaming service. You've just stopped kind of given up. Maybe, maybe convince yourself, I'll come back to it. And then maybe never did. Yeah. The
1: streaming lie. We all tell ourselves, I'll I'll watch it eventually. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Or you just
0: straight up. Don't even try. And it just like (laughs) idles in your, in your queue forever. But (laughs) like, so that happens far more often than you just getting up and walking out of a theater. Right. Mm hmm. Indeed. Okay, so it's just like that. There, there's already an importance kind of like built into sitting in a theater and and watching something and giving it a chance. You've invested in it. There's a sense of importance to it. Whereas like, otherwise, there's just like a dismissibility to it. And um, there's there's a film that's sort of like, at this point, it's a given that it's a Netflix type title because it, it comes from a, a filmmaker. What's his name? Charlie McDowell.
1: McDonald. McDowell.
0: Yeah. So he made the one I love, and he kind of comes from the Duplass brothers' like school of, uh, you know, like that whole camp of like kind of post mumblecore directors. And uh, like Netflix has a has a sort of invested interest in the Duplass brothers, like kind of help them break through with Puffy Chair, and uh, they just seem like a a staple for for Netflix. Yeah, and so like that that whole camp of filmmakers, it seems like uh, a sort of it's a foregone conclusion almost that that type of movie is just built for streaming services. And like, to me, that's, that's, it's like a double edged sword. Cause it's like, I'm glad like a, a ton of movies are still going to get made, but it's depressing also that it's a foregone conclusion that like, yes, of course this type of movie will be mostly streaming only. And, but then like, so you, you and I bemoan that, that that's like a, a given and a foregone conclusion that a certain type of movie will be relegated to streaming only maybe playing in one theater in Van Nuys or something like that. Cause uh, the discovery is playing in some place in LA. I've never heard of <laughs> anyway, it's it premiered on, on Netflix uh, like a week or so ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I wish I could argue on its behalf, but it's kind of, to me a sort of dismissible movie. Um, yeah. and so it, it plays against our, our sort of argument and our thesis that things sort of deserve to be seen in the theater. Cause like I, as I was watching it, I was like, well, my instinct is just stop watching this. Like there's nothing really drawing me in. It's got a great cast, mm-hmm. most of which I don't connect with in it, but I like them and I, I wish I liked the the film they're in more, but like, so it's just like that sense of like oh here's a title that like just it doesn't have the, the the competitive edge to inch above the avalanche of other titles that are competing for people's attention.
1: I had a very similar reaction to this movie where for well for me I'd like to start with with the one I love which is a film that really took me by surprise a couple years ago when when it came mm-hmm. out. Beyond the movie being really entertaining, funny and I thought like just very clever mix of sci-fi and like sort of anti-rom-com elements is that mm-hmm. it belonged in a cinema. It was, it, uh, it had cinematic qualities to it, that it belonged on the big screen. And for you to really give, give yourself over to that experience and the discovery, of course, you know, I watched it at home on Netflix, but it didn't really, it was really lacking a lot of that. Now the, yeah. the, the premise is fantastic in this movie. It's got a great concept to kick things off where the whole idea is that it exists in a, in a world where uh, Robert Redford's character, who's the father of Jason Siegel in this movie, he's discovered, he's scientifically proven that the afterlife exists or that something happens after you die.
0: Right. That's all I knew of the... The, the premise, mm-hmm. and then I'm not spoiling anything by saying this, but like, within minutes of the movie it's, um they announced that like, now that they've proven that there's a definitive afterlife everybody's killing themselves, and I was like what the f as a, like a, as a cynic I was just like, oh, that wouldn't have occurred to me, that that's what humanity's first instinct would be to do would be to just in mass start killing themselves, <laughs> and so that like that that foregone conclusion to me almost seemed like a completely black-hearted dark comedic impulse that the movie's tone doesn't match at all. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, well that's like that's a really mean joke to me and it's just like if the film had any true sense of it, like adventure with itself, it would have followed that because it didn't really have like it, the movie was like Sour and kind of like somber and contemplative and like <sighs> autumnal, and it so it just it didn't really have a strong sense of like confident tone in its narrative, mm-hmm. and so like it just felt wobbly. And so like when it needed its melodrama to pay off, you weren't with it because it was just like, well, it's it's too detached because it's dealing with this kind of like this conceptualism that's not connecting with the emotion of the narrative. And it just would have been better served either in a shorter form. And so it could have fired off like more sort of like black humorous punchlines, which I think the, the kind of the best performance in the movie, which you mentioned off mic, but like uh, Jesse Piemans. Yeah. How you pronounce his name? No, Plemons. Um,
1: I think Jesse Plemons.
0: Plemons. Okay. He like, he seems to be in the movie I'd prefer watching. Yes. He seems to be performing in a kind of looser, more uh, like manic movie that like just the movie was just too overly serious. And it was just like, well, you're you you can't line up the tones because even like Black Mirror and its detachment, it's like even in its direst moment, like it's it's blackly humorous as well. Mm -hmm. And so it just this kind of like machinery going. So it's not stopping to like weep in your face, you know, which, which just caught, I think a lot of people just withdraw from, and they're like, no, no, I don't, I don't want you to cry at me. And so, it just wasn't confident in its tone. And like, there's another, there's a movie, not a movie, but another comedy special. And this is what made me realize the tone was off with the discovery. Okay. Cause Louis CK's new standup yeah. special mirrored yesterday and the whole opening, Is essentially about suicide, and it's like I almost choked to death because I was trying to eat while I was watching it. I was laughing so hard, I was like, "Oh, this is where the movie should have sort of like lined up with. It should have like been forcing us to confront things that are hard and dark and sort of impossible to deal with, but sort of opening up the kind of visceral experience by injecting some dark humor into it. Instead, it just felt like lifeless. Yeah, in a a, that didn't serve itself.
1: Oh man, you're, you're spot on. It, it didn't occur to me as I was watching the discovery that, yeah, this is so much more rife for some dark comedy needed in it. Like, but you're spot on. I I think for me, I didn't, it didn't occur to me because I was just wanting to, to, I I kept kind of getting through it by saying this has to be going somewhere. There has to be some hook to it beyond the concept, which is laid out in the first five minutes of the movie. Um, And there never is. There's, there are certainly these twisty elements that come later on, but by then I couldn't help but thinking like, really, that's where we're going with this? Like that, it just felt really yeah. un- underwhelming as it progressed. And I, I just felt like, where's the filmmaker of the one I love that, that the tone of that movie seemed perfectly in keeping with what you're saying, that the discovery was lacking. It really could have used that injection of humor. I ultimately, it feels like a real missed opportunity on a great premise. And if it did have the, the spikes of dark humor to it, I think it would be more successful on something like Netflix. I think that comedy or even dark comedies, things like black mirror clearly travel and do really well on Netflix um, yeah. So yeah, does feel like a real missed opportunity with this movie, and I just kept thinking like, where is the filmmaker that I remember from that first movie that really got my attention? This just feels like it could have just been done by any sort of depressed college student getting out of film school with a great idea for a movie, and um, yeah, it, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame.
0: Yeah, there, there are these great like hooks to, to like there, it's a it's a great premise that on paper you're like oh this would this is a great hook for like a feature. And so like that's the type of thing you want to sort of champion still being in theaters, which are becoming so like the movies that are dominating the sort of like theatrical experience, you and I are sort of arguing that they've become so like dull and predictable that you want to inject them with a life of like surprise still, mm-hmm. and then for something that has like a, a sort of intriguing premise to sort of just like, be, become something kind of emotionally uninvolving even though it's trying to be the opposite is is depressing and it, it reminded me of our conversation uh that we had where we were we were talking about a uh, swiss army man last summer
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how like those those sort of like edgy kind of those tough pitches that are just like that's what sort of sells the movie is like it's about a A guy bonding with a farting corpse, huh? How is this going to pay off? And then we sort of countered it while talking about Adult Swim movie or Adult Swim specials that are like 12 minutes long, sometimes a half hour at the most. Mm -hmm. And like packing all of these exciting ideas and like maybe those ideas fall apart over the course of a feature length film you know, like, because they're so they're so dense. And like, to to involve someone emotionally over the course of like, what is 90 minutes or more, sometimes those concepts just don't hold up to the test of time. And so they're better in short form, short, abrupt bursts. And so like packing, like watching ideas, kind of unfold in in the discovery, it's just like, well, I've seen these ideas covered more concisely and with more punch. And that's what you sort of like, unfortunately, a lot of times need to keep people engaged is a sense of punch. And that punch gives it the competitive edge to sort of make you linger on it and then recommend it and like love it ultimately, you know, and like that, this just wasn't the case, unfortunately.
1: God, yeah, I would actually and not, you know, I wasn't crazy about Swiss Army, man, but I would love to see what those filmmakers would have done with this material for the discovery. Yeah, yeah totally. Oh, yeah. It seems like there'd be much more, much more going on with it something to keep my attention which is needed in this streaming age that we're that we're in and uh, it does feel like one of these titles that i'm uh, there's plenty of good reasons why netflix on paper or even before they saw it thought this is something we should pick up probably didn't cost them that much but uh yeah it's i think it's just gonna get lost lost in that sea
0: you don't remember anything last night huh I'm really melodramatic, didn't I? told me that you weren't really on a vacation. That you've been looking for a job for a year. Your boyfriend didn't work out. You are out of control. What? I've packed two things. They're in the bedroom. What? And since you didn't have any money, you decided to move back here. Is there anything else?
1: don't remember anything
0: our next title that we can possibly discuss, mm-hmm. um, colossal. Yes. It's like, that's, it's getting a strictly theatrical release, mm-hmm. but I kind of feel bad because I think like this might be another movie that you could argue like, well, it's sort of built for streaming, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's the type of, it's got the sort of indie sensibility. And like, again, that's depressing to me to think that way, to think that it's certain titles become foregone conclusions that yes. Of, yes, of course it's going strictly to Amazon prime or Hulu or Netflix, like, you know, because I like you and I both value the theatrical experience. And so like to, to see a movie like this, but to me, there's, there was just a sensibility to it that like, yes, this will be the type of movie that like, while it's still being fought to be seen in the theaters, it might be something that a few years from now, it would be a foregone conclusion that it would just wind up streaming, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like it's a, it's a director who has some traction who has like a, a, a fan base enough, but it, it has a sensibility that's like, it's not Disney, it's not whatever the fuck. And even though it, it, it's, it's concept, again, it's like it's a high concept movie mm-hmm. about a, a, a woman in the midst of a crisis where she, she's got a substance abuse problem and is forced to move back home, not unlike uh, like a garden state type movie <laughs> back home Yep. and she realizes there's a parallel with some of her sort of more drunken rampages that she may have some sort of like alternate life as a uh, monster in South Korea. That's rampaging around kind of like a, like a Godzilla type creature. Yeah, and so Kaiju. it's like, well, oh, that's high concept. Wow. Like that's, I want to see that that sounds fucking crazy ultimately the movie's not that crazy. It's a little, (laughs) it's a little confused, you know, like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, and it's messiness I think is, is, is a little more endearing than possibly like our last title that we discussed, but ultimately, you know, like it's also a film that like it's tonal uncertainty began to work against it for me.
1: Mm -hmm. I also feel uh, I'm reminded of our recent talk about something like personal shopper where Uh Colossal is a movie that I want more movies like this to get made. You know, the, the, that nice, it it does exist in that beautiful sort of uh, like it, it has the indie uh, sensibility, but it is very much a genre movie at heart. And part of the fun of Colossal is seeing how they cleverly get around a lack of budget while still trying to pull off an actual, monster, movie, at least moments that will live up to you if you've just seen, like, say, Kong Skull Island. There are at least some moments where special effects had to be used that mm. it, it essentially can exist in that realm. You know, like the, the effects are good when they need to be in Colossal. And there are a few moments here and there where they sort of mask... They can pull off some destruction or things that would cost a lot of money to pull off, and they do it cleverly with basically no money at all. Uh, I'm thinking of a moment where... Um, uh, Anne Hathaway's the star of this movie, but, uh, also Jason Sudeikis is this, uh, when she moves back home is this guy that she used to know when they grew, they were growing up like in elementary school and they sort of reform a friendship, uh, at this point in her life. And there, there's a moment where he, uh, you, where some destruction is happening, but you don't actually see it with special effects. It, it happens in a very cleverly filmed way, um, uh, I appreciated things like that. I appreciated Anne Hathaway's performance, which kind of reminded me of her character in Rachel getting married. She's got mm-hmm. this, yeah, this alcohol problem. Um, it's, she's, she's good in the movie. She helps like, she helps it work if it does it all. But, uh, yeah, beyond, beyond that. And some, to me, interesting, uh, angles with the way the villain plays out in this movie, uh, is specifically dealing with a sort of, um, uh, like it gets, it's something that's talked about, I think, a lot now these, these days, especially in media and film, is like toxic masculinity, the mm-hmm. idea of that, and it's explored in this movie in a really clever way, and it turns out to sort of wrap itself around a, a what is revealed to be a, like a villain character later in the movie. I, I appreciated that stuff, but never felt like oh, this is one I'd only go to bat for this movie in so much as I hope it does well enough that it allows more movies like this to come to theaters to get made. Um, And also the company putting it out. Neon is like a new offshoot of draft house films, which we've supported over the years in this podcast. And they're trying to keep things uh, in the theatrical realm. That's really important to them. So yeah, there are all these elements that I want to support, but ultimately the movie I thought was just okay. You know, just, just fine. Yeah.
0: In in that sense, it's it's a lot like personal shopper, at least in our response to it, because it's just like there there is a lot of work. And like, I appreciate its ambition and definitely the time it takes to explore a lot of its ideas. But none of the ideas kind of go deep enough. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate there at least that there's a kind of a mess on screen being explored. And uh, I think Anne Hathaway is great in it. And I think that she gets unfairly maligned Uh, maybe because she was in the princess diary I don't know like people just hate her for some reason (laughs) unfairly which may work I think for this character Mm because like she is you know she's engaged in behavior that like to anybody who would deal with her in real life it's irritating and so like it sort of helps to be like you know having this kind of anti-heroic thing that she ultimately kind of has to rise to the occasion and reach deep inside of herself and try to become a, a better person or better monster. And uh, I think she, I think she's great in it. I think Jason Sudeikis is, like, solid. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie does pivot in weird ways. And it, it becomes, like, you, what you think is just, like, a strange concept for a rom-com then segues into strange sleeping with enemy territory. And you're like, wait, what? but all couched in a Godzilla type, you know, premise. And so it's just like, it's, it's enough of a mess that I think people, people can connect to it. It didn't necessarily um, like pay off in a, in a satisfying way narratively for me, Mm -hmm. but like I'm, I'm with you that like, I, I would, I'd prefer to champion a mess like this, um, over any sort of thing that will rinse off what we're walking out of. I would, I would prefer to be griping about how things didn't add up. Yeah. And just like, huh? What did I watch? I don't know. I just got <laughs> pummeled for you know two two hours and fifteen minutes with something that I want to forget.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the the writer director Nacho Vigalondo. This is his bread and butter, the kind of stuff that he's done. Like starting with, I think it was his first film was Time Crimes from yeah. like decade ago. A nice clever take on time travel. These indie low budget genre movies and. Extraterrestrial was another one. I believe it was set in Spain. Um, I saw that at uh, a film festival a few years back. Um, these these I, this, these uh, high concept but small budgeted movies. He's it's it's he's got a skill for it, and he he can pull them off in a way. And it's cool to see him working with more well known actors. That's going to help him, and hopefully allow him to get more movies like this made. All that's very promising. But uh, yeah, there's. There, there are elements that I even got hung up. This is a movie too colossal that you really have to just sort of accept what's happening on screen or right. it's it's it very easily picked apart and I think an audience any anyone in the audience that question thing questions things very um, often or they're like, wait a minute, why is that this way? I yeah, think yeah. I think by the end the movie is gonna might even just really be annoying right. to, to folks like that.
0: And and this was another thing with like the tone, where it was like the tone was kind of had had a similar sort of sour look to it, you know. That like there there was like there was enough. It was a it was a lot more driven by humor than the discovery was, oh, yeah. but it still had kind of a mopey quality that I think like if there was a faster clip, because I almost texted you in the in the middle of watching it, like why is this so long? You know, like, it's. <laughs>
1: yeah it's almost it was, two it, hours, yeah,
0: yeah. and so it's just like there there needed to be more brevity to sort of give life to the the more you know like reckless impulses the movie had, and it just like uh, the, the longer it i think the the more time it takes, the more people who are prone to question its logic mm. will check the fuck out, you know, yeah. and i'm not I'm not sort of on board with saying like this like you need to. Move at such a clip that you don't have time to question things because, like, we're all for open, long form, contemplative movie experiences. Some of which maybe we'll mention on this episode, In- indeed. but, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, at the same time, like, I think to service the kind of like thrust of the movie it needed to have a stronger sense of tone. It maybe needed to have like a faster clip in terms of it's like comedic delivery mm-hmm. for it to sort of like feel like it's paying off more than it does. Indeed. I feel bad, but I also <laughs> you know, like I, I, it's the, the same with personal shopper that I want to support films like this being made mm-hmm. and I want them to be better.
1: Uh, I think, I think that allows us to pivot into a, maybe a final section, a sort of grab bag of, of stuff Um, That could see us, for the most part, reviving an old segment from the show in the past, uh, Laptop Cinema, where it's just recommending stuff that is streaming that you can see. But before I jump on those, a few of those titles, the things that I've just been watching recently that I really want to recommend to folks. So Mm -hmm. we're not so we're not entirely grouchy on this episode um, is just a movie that is coming to theaters that isn't necessarily dying. There are more and more movies being produced around the world. Uh, foreign mm-hmm. titles, but movies that actually have a legit shot at coming to a theater in the U S and most likely just art houses mm-hmm. in in bigger cities. But I do feel like the space for these kind of movies that deserve it are, is like they're going away. And that, that worries me a little bit when we talk about a movie uh, like graduation, which is mm-hmm. a Romanian film. Uh, the Romanian new wave has been going on for like more of a, more than a decade at this point. And, this film is directed by probably the most well-known or most appreciated by cinephiles, um, uh, Christian Munju. He did four months, three weeks, two days, which is an uh, just an amazing film, a uh, harrowing experience. Yeah. And then he, he made another movie called Beyond the Hills, which I'm pretty sure we talked about that on this podcast when it came out. Um, uh, also a harrowing, much, much longer, maybe more trying on the patience experience, but it's definitely fitting with this Romanian style of film that's like in vogue right now, uh, at least in film festivals. And I just, uh, it's not like we don't need to belabor it or or be too long on it. But to me, graduation is just a really brilliantly scripted movie that shows that every scene matters, even when it's not clear in the moment. Yeah. And that's this Munju, I think that's one of his specialties as a filmmaker is not only tension and creating tension out of mundane, reality but also and little choices we make and the consequences that can have the ripple effect but it's just tightly scripted he 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 treats kind of social neorealist cinema with with genre like sensibilities of like he he keeps you on edge by the way the sort of onion peels back more and more in his movies and uh Graduation was a film I saw uh in February at a festival here in Portland and it was one of my favorite titles because it got its hooks on me right away. And I just think though, it's only going to be in some cities. Like if you're into foreign films, this is one that I think go to the cinema and go see graduation. Cause it is a really, really strong piece of work. I think
0: it's, it's interesting. Cause like there's, there is like a, there's a stark neorealism mm-hmm. to, to his work, like in four months, three weeks, two days that still pulses with kind of like uh, a, a genre ride quality. Like the four mm-hmm. months, three weeks, two days is almost like it's a thriller about, you know, illegal abortions, essentially. Yeah. You know, and it but it to say thriller I think cheapens it because there is such a sense of like dramatic investment in every single second. And like what you're what you're saying about like he, everything that he shows you matters. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, like, from the first, like, moment of the film, it opens and it's sort of a street scene outside the apartment of the family it's covering. And, like, just that – just that, it's just a sort of long shot of a street and, like, there's something happening in the corner of the frame. There's right. someone digging a ditch, And it's just, like, this is matter of fact. It's not showy in any way, but it's a compelling visual because you have what's going on in the street – who the fuck's digging that hole what's happening and it sort of hooks you without being show-offy in any way and i think that that's like a, a real sort of like auteur's touch to to have like a stark realism and an almost like a, a documentary intensity yeah. while still having every shot matter and having every moment have a, like a sense of dire consequences that like this movie sort of lapses into like a sort of crimes and misdemeanor sense of like morality and stuff. And like, I I just think that he's, he's someone to continue to check in with and like, you know, makes movies, you know, unfortunately not with the, the clip of a a lot of American filmmakers. Like he has a movie every kind of like four years or so.
1: Yeah. It's around there.
0: Um, But you know, if they're of this quality, like I can be patient. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah, it's like I I want these movies to get it's getting a small release. That's great. But like I want it to exist beyond just a film festival circuit. But Mm -hmm. the reality is of the way things are evolving, it might just be film festivals that these movies can best be appreciated and seen. And then who knows where they go from there? They then they go on some art film streaming service. But I I do want it. It's worth it to support these movies for them to continue in a theater, uh, not just Sort of as a, you know, like, a, a, a like just, like, it, it's worth your time, like, beyond just supporting something like this. It's a good film. I, I would be surprised if uh, folks who like, you know, foreign films, like, this would be one of the better ones, I'd think, to see this year, so. Well,
0: because I think a lot of, like, the level of attentiveness he has as a director kind of deserves the same attentiveness from an audience. And that that's only benefited from sitting in a theater, like in the dark, focusing on one thing, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I think that's, that's where something like this with, with the intensity it has, like, that's, that's where it really lives. And that's where it's continue. Like that's, he's making movies most likely to be seen in the theater. Mm-hmm. And that's where they deserve to be seen. And so like, Hopefully, you know, there's, there's a focus to the film that the people who are sort of predisposed to liking it will seek it out on whatever form it takes after the theater. But like, you know, with the level of sort of distractability there is just in the world at large, like it just, I, I think that movies like this, despite their intense focus might suffer, you know,
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. indeed. Well, um, a couple, a couple things uh, that I also wanted to recommend, uh, at least personally, uh, that really play perfectly in the streaming world and get me more excited for the, I mean, in theory, the endless possibilities of the way, um, you know, TV and movies, the way they can overlap and morph and evolve and kind of give us new things. Uh, yeah. Like that's, that's the great possibility of streaming. Uh, I love the freedom that can be explored with that. And I think one, new example right now that did just pop up on Netflix is just this mini called five came back. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's an adaptation of the Mark Harris book. Mark Harris is a critic for vulture. And he also wrote a book called pictures out of revolution, um, which it looks at the 1967, I think Oscar race where it was between like the young movies, like Bonnie and Clyde and the graduate versus the sort of yeah. old Hollywood. Yeah. Dr. Doolittle and in the heat of the night, that is an awesome book um and 5 came back was Harris's follow up and I uh, haven't read that book yet but uh man the Netflix miniseries while not being formally or structurally adventurous it's pretty pretty you know straight faced a lot of talking heads with archival footage but it is a to me it was really gripping and just I kind of felt like I put on like my old man sweater as I watched it this week that I was like, this is like, I'm an adult. I'm going to watch this like documentary about filmmakers, famous Hollywood filmmakers during world war II that got uh, recruited by the government to make propaganda and documentary stuff to essentially galvanize the country into going to war, but also, you know, documenting it and reflecting it. And while, like I said, structurally and stylistically, it's all pretty straightforward. It's not, it's not going to, wow you in the way uh that uh a really exciting documentary that just changes like that really messes with the form but i think what it is is another piece of something like uh uh the oj made in america documentary that we saw last year that we both were thrilled by is that it's just like an example of what you can do with this long form uh, model. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, I just, I really, I really love it. I can't recommend it enough. It's right now. It's one of just the, my favorite things I've seen this year. So I'm definitely championing a lot. And, uh, have you, have you had a chance to watch any of it at all, Joe? No,
0: I haven't had a chance, but you, you've definitely sold me on it. And it's like, it's a type of, it's a type of documentary that I think like, because it's not beholden to, uh, you know, like getting people to the theater to see it or, you know, of course they want eyeballs on it, but um, like it can, it doesn't have the urgency that it has to sell itself. So it can, it can sit and that it's a great gateway to appreciating other films. Cause it's about yes. filmmakers that, you know, went to world war II to, to, attempt to sort of like uh drum up some, some sense of like, you know, like morale for, for the troops, I think is what the, the, the log line said yep am I correct yeah. yeah so so like that is just a great gateway to like oh who are these filmmakers like if you're not familiar with them like go look into them and, and i think a, a similar kind of documentary uh martin scorsese's personal journey through american cinema like yeah. what? why that isn't readily available on netflix all the time it's kind of a mystery to me because it's that's perfect because it's mm-hmm. just like Here's a here's a gateway into appreciating more films. And like that's where at this point, that's where those fucking documentaries and specials, you know, should live because it's like a platform to expose yourself and give you a vocabulary to take in more.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I would have loved to have seen, you know, a, a scholar of cinema like Scorsese talk in this documentary, but the he doesn't, unfortunately, but what you do have is some of his peers and other great filmmakers that are paired up with uh to essentially comment on the the filmmaker from the past. So, you know, just to clarify, the five filmmakers that f- it explores in this documentary is John Ford, John Houston, George Stevens, William Wyler. And, um, I'm blanking on the other one. It'll come back to me, but, uh, what's that? Not Capra. Oh yeah. Thank you. Frank Capra. He was the other one. Um, so I got to learn more about these filmmakers that I've certainly read about seen some of their films. Uh, John Houston's Wade one, made one of my all time favorites treasure, of the Sierra Madre. I mean, these are, these are like the top class directors from that era. So beyond just like seeing this this pretty life-altering thing, like you see how it affected all of them after they came back from the war and um, all the footage they assemble and, and edit together in this film is really fascinating. But you, you pair up. So like Guillermo del Toro is a really big fan of Frank Capra, actually, which to me, that was sort of surprising. I was like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that this guy that makes these sort of you know, high budget genre movies is really into that, but he talks beautifully. I could listen to Guillermo del Toro talk about Frank Capra or just film. I realized after this for a long time, it'd be great. Um, So he's really compelling. You have Francis Coppola talking about Houston. You have Spielberg talking about William Wyler. Like it's awesome insight from filmmakers that I've admired. And uh, you know, I, I really appreciate all that. And I think your point stands that this is the kind of stuff that, they should make more of on netflix or wherever else it could stream i think it's just um it feels new it feels fresh and it's perfect for a streaming service like that because it's broken up in three parts they're each about an hour long it's it's great i i couldn't get through it quick enough and um like i said it's one of my favorite things to to be watching right now so definitely um yeah i would just a question you joe is like i guess we're not a question but it, it, it is occurring to me that like this is I think the way it's going to alter the kind of top 10 list making that happens at the end of every year now, because um, OJ made in America was one of my favorite films of last year. It was on my top 10. It is qualified as a film. It won the Oscar for best documentary, but it's not necessarily a traditional film. So I, I am also excited by that possibility of like things opening up that you could essentially champion, even though they're not a traditional film. I think the possibilities are very exciting for that. And you know, I look forward to, to list making when you have things like this that can kind of seep in and, and open up the idea of what a list is. So
0: <laughs> you made like something very dull sounding sound exciting. List making <laughs> I'm really excited to reapproach list making. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a thrilling life, let me tell you. Um well and just because we've been going on for a while and this is such a, a grab bag episode, I just quickly I would like to say that um now that season two of Fargo is is on Hulu and it's much probably more easily available for folks now than it was before. I got to say, uh, holy shit, I, I loved season two of Fargo so much more than the first season. We actually kind of found a bit of a disappointment given all the hype around that series. Mm. And um, so just you know, with that, also Jesse Plemons is in season two of Fargo and he's one of the highlights of it. Um, as is uh, Ted Danson, just phenomenal in this show, and uh, Kirsten Dunst and Patrick Wilson. The, the the cast is, I think, much stronger in this season, and it's not as beholden to all the uh, Cohen. There's certainly a lot of references still to Cohen brothers movies, uh-huh. but I don't. But I don't think it's it's not as stuck in trying to actually exist in the same world. Uh, as Fargo the movie as the first season did. So um now you've seen the first season. have you seen any of of this this next one yet, Joe?
0: no, i I didn't finish the first season because it irritated me out of wanting to finish it, but then <laughs> it, it had that that same uh, w- what happens a lot is that people are like, whoa, yeah, but you really gotta stick around for the second season, which I was just like, you know, there's just not enough time, you yeah. know, like, just to be like, no, no, you need to get through the first three seasons of Lost before season four. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, who has that much of their life to, but to find out that it's a completely different story. Yes, and maybe like the the sort of the confidence that you you need after you've sort of established your first season. Like, maybe the confidence was sort of like more in tune with creating like a more kind of confident narrative. Um, like, I, I'm I'm definitely more. Inclined to check out season two now, especially considering the cast and Bokeem Woodbine is in season two, correct? Oh
1: yeah, God, you know that he's the he's actually my favorite character in this season, so I should have brought him up first and foremost. And yeah, dude, is it good to see Bokeem Woodbine? Like, I I think of like way back to Dead Presidents in like the mm-hmm. mid nineties, you know, like even before that. Yeah, yeah. What was that?
0: Pre- he played preacher, right? Oh,
1: right, right. In that film, yes, yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Sorry, he cut out. Um yeah, no, exactly. And he um he's he has a really like just fun, verbose, violent, crazy character that he plays in in Fargo season two. But uh yeah, he's he's a highlight for sure. And uh yeah, I think more than anything, this season amps up the stuff I liked the most about the first season in that the visuals of this show this this might be the most cinematic, beautifully like lensed show on TV right now. It is I would love to get to see some of these episodes in a theater just to really appreciate it, but it's, it's beautifully composed. It love the soundtrack and the editing it in this season, because it's set in the seventies, they use a lot of uh, split screen stuff uh, mm-hmm. and it evokes a sort of Brian De Palma aesthetic, but it uses it in a really interesting way where it's like it, it, it evokes the era, but uses it to actually sort of um, between a lot of interstitial scenes to to continue character development and push the narrative forward in a really clever way while also orienting you to the time period. It's a, it's a really cool stylistic thing that actually adds up with some substance in the show. Um, So the visuals are still great in this season, but what it does better than the first for me is it moves away from it. It's connected to some characters from the first season, but it doesn't feel this need to be like, like, the first season to me felt like a good crime show that was sort of sunk into the Coen brothers world that felt this need to like connect it to something that existed already because we're in this era, you know, like it has to, you can't just have an original series. It has to be connected to some IP that exists, you know? And it always felt to me like that first season was a good crime show that was forced to connect to the Fargo, the Coen brothers world. And that's probably not true, but it felt like that. This one just seems like, Those shackles are kind of off it because it was introduced already. And now we can just tell you a great story set, um, you know, in in my in my homeland in Minnesota for the most part. And uh, I love it. I I, I thought uh, I can't wait for what they're going to do with this third season, uh, which I'm seeing trailers for now. And, you know, it can't it can't come soon enough. Um, and it's worth definitely making time. I would say, like, don't even bother with the first season if it wasn't working for you, Joe. I'd say, like, try it. Give the second one a, a chance if you if you can. And I think I think you'll find it more rewarding, like I did. We 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 could not stop watching it in my house. So uh, I'm a big champion of this season two of Fargo. Go see it. Yay! Yay! <laughs> well, can I can
0: I recommend something on Netflix Please. while we're at it? I mean, because it just seems uh, there's a well for one since Jesse Plemans is a running thread through the show, uh, Other People, which was, it was released last year. Mm-hmm. He is the star of, about a comedy writer who comes home to deal with his dying mother, played by Molly Shannon. And it was like, it's, it's the movie that, I think it had more of a sort of like devastating emotional impact than a movie that has been championed despite its problematic qualities, Manchester by the sea. Mm. It was, it has the same ability to access like absolute gut punching tragedy while getting you to laugh at the same time and Mm. not in a cheap way, but in a sort of well-earned character driven way. And uh, it's, yeah, it was. It really took me by surprise because, like, I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on Netflix once it popped up. I think around the the new year, and uh, that's available. Jesse Plemons, he's a he's he's a good one. He's a catch. Meth Damon, as he was called uh, on Breaking Bad, she was kind of broke through. And, um, and also, there's a documentary called Radio That Changed Lives: The Stretch and Bobito Story. That's on Netflix. That's huh? about this era. Of radio in New York um, Stretch and Bobito were the show hosts That hosted uh, a college radio show That broke kind of like every big rapper of that era Nas, Jay-Z, everybody came out of there And it's just this portrait Similar to what you were talking about About directors talking about other filmmakers How you could just watch them Like when you watch someone discussing what they love it's hard not to feel that kind of sense of contagion and right. so like this movie is like for me personally it may just be ph balance just for me but like <laughs> it it's just like a joy from start to finish even in even when it gets into the drama of the subject matter like mm-hmm. it's just two guys who found friendship through this thing that they loved and they were in this community that like loved them back and they were it was this era of like complete discovery where it was just like all these things were happening and they were gatekeepers and like it was considered the golden era of hip hop music and so like it was just this time where people were you really had to like kind of fight to be discovered and it created this like environment of you know friendly competitiveness mm. that where where the art really thrived and uh just to see that period kind of like freeze framed beautifully in this documentary directed by, um, Bobito, one of the, one of the hosts of the show. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a, I've watched it way too many times at this point.
1: (laughs) See, I, this is great, man, because I think, you know, this is our bread and butter moving forward for us of like recommend. I want us to recommend more obscure stuff like that. This movie has not been on my radar at all. I've never heard of it. And that sounds great. Like I'm, As I get older, I'm appreciating more and more of these sort of documentary stories like this, whether they're movie length, you know, 90 minutes or they're the miniseries long form like I that is just becoming more and more exciting to me. And I think uh, we should just keep on the lookout for stuff like this. This is the sort of thing that we can recommend and curate for listeners of this show, because that is the sort of world we're evolving more and more into is if there are people that listen to us that might be looking for some recommendations, hopefully we can curate a nice varied, you know, grab bag of titles and the choice then is on, on the listener. So, you know, we've given up, we've given quite a lot to uh, think about or consider on this episode, but, uh, but uh, these things at the end are the stuff that we're clearly most excited about. So, you know, seek them out and uh, we'll, we'll do our best. We'll keep curating. Right. Joe? That's true. It is true. Well, why don't we uh why don't we put this one to bed here? Almost at an hour. We haven't gone this long in a while, Joe. Yeah, looks good. It does feel good. Yeah, so let's wrap up episode 144 of Gesture Tracking. Uh all these episodes are uh, of course brought to you by the and we are still sponsored by Mubi, the streaming service. So uh make sure to check out Mubi if you uh want an additional streaming service and one that is curated by well, you know, well uh learned film uh programmers for that streaming service they know what they're doing and uh there's a lot of good stuff that pops up there on the regular so we thank them for our uh for their support as well as the playlist.net and uh more than anything though i gotta i gotta thank you joe for talking with me today
0: thanks eric